Hey everyone, welcome to City Church OTR's Sermons Podcast. Here you will find all of the sermons and teachings that are given at our Sunday services. We also have our original City Church OTR podcast, which has more conversations, interviews, and more interactive content. As always, we would love to meet you. Check out our Instagram to see what we're doing this week and our website, citychurchotr.com, to meet one of our pastors. Enjoy. Hello, hello, you all. I was so um, blessed by that worship. I already feel grateful that we are together this morning. And I was going to just say about the chore list and the volunteer thing. In our household, we changed the name of chore list to the contribution list. So um, uh, we have a contribution list, and I think that that's part of church family life. So sign up for your contribution. Um, and I wasn't even going to start with this, but Duke the Doodle inspired me. <laughs> and your, your words to him. There's a, um, there's a verse in Psalm 107 that says, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. And that's really what I want to do this morning is just tell you some of my story. Um, and I think what you said to Duke, you know, you're a, you're a good puppy who's going to grow to be a great dog. I think words really matter. I think the words that we say to each other really matter. I've never had a pet, but I imagine the words you say to your pets matter. I think the words that, um, that are said on a stage in a setting like a church, are they matter, and I want to be careful with them. But Todd and I have a large family. We have 11 kids, and a bunch of them are adopted. And we adopted a 12-year-old boy about seven years ago. And in the process of his adoption, it took 18 months. He was living in another country. We were living um, here in the U.S. And during those 18 months while we were processing the adoption, I got that government to agree to allow us to Skype. We were using Skype then, Skype three times a week with him to begin to build attachment because I knew that would be really important for us to do as fast as possible. He was pretty upbeat, pretty upbeat little kid. We talked about, you know, weather and soccer and nothing very exciting, but we were just getting to know each other. Nine months into that 18 months, he got on Skype one night and he looked really visibly sad, depressed, And I was like, what's up, buddy? What happened? And he said, they moved me from an 8 to an 11-year-old boy's dorm into a 12 to 18-year-old boy's dorm. This is a government orphanage. And a 12 to 18-year-old boy's government orphanage is exactly everything you imagine from movies in your brain. And he was just afraid of what that experience was going to be like. This was night one. And I, when it was time to hang up, I didn't feel good hanging up with him. I didn't, I didn't, he felt really far away to me and like slippery, like I couldn't get my hands on him. So I said, hey buddy, here's what I do when I get really big feelings. I remind myself of the things I know for sure are true. What do you know for sure is true? He's like, I know nothing for sure is true. And I said, okay, well, um, here's what I, you can just borrow mine. Here's what I know for sure is true. You're my son and we're coming for you. And God has a plan, and I, you may not like it or understand it, but I promise you we can trust it. I'm like, say it back to me. He's like, I'm your son. You're coming for me. God has a plan. I can trust it. And I was like, don't you feel better already? I'm not totally sure he did, but um, I did. <laughs> and as we hung up for the following nine months, that became our closing mantra. Before we would say goodbye to each other um, for the last time on that call, we would, he would just repeat to me, I'm your son, and you're coming for me. And God has a plan, and we can trust it. Finally, we got told it's time to go to court. Very exciting. So we flew. A bunch of our family got in court. We, he, he had new clothes on. He had a, a plane ticket in his new name. It was like we have been waiting for this day for a year and a half. We walk into the courthouse, and everything about him changed from how he had been in the car just moments before. 
And he was, he was emotionally triggered because the last time he was physically in that space, a family came apart and nobody had processed with him what that all felt like. So walking back into that geography, he was picking up right where he had left off, was having these really big feelings. But like, by the way, we have court in 15 minutes. So, so sorry, bud, we're moving on. So we go into court and everything starts happening the way that we knew it was gonna happen. Like attorneys testified, social works testified, Todd and I testified. But the way the law is written, in Mexico, you, if you're over the age of 12 and you're going to have to repatriate to another country, you have to testify in your own voice. It's what your will is. So after all the adults had said all the things that this is going to be so lovely, the judge turns to him and was like, hey, so is this your desire? You'd like to go with this family permanently and leave this country as a part of theirs, of, the, of their family. And all he had to do was say yes. But he didn't... Um, he didn't have it in him. I mean, he was, he was completely checked out. So I did what moms do. Like I rubbed his back, like whispered in his ear, hey buddy, you got this. Like, I'm here for you. Just tell the guy what we've been talking about. You're so excited. It was totally ineffective. Todd, my husband was on the other side. He did what sometimes dads do. He used his elbow and his ribs like, son, tell him what we're doing. Like, it's time to go, right? Like, like tell him up. I like to remind him also equally ineffective. And so I began to negotiate with a judge, like, hey, what are my workarounds? Like, can we clear some of these people out? Can he go in your chambers? Can he write it down? Like, what, what can we do? And he said, I'm super sympathetic to your situation, but here's, here's the reality. His voice, all of these people in this room, he has to say this. And so I just sat there, kept rubbing Tyler's back, thinking, I wonder how long they'll let us wait in this room, and I'm not leaving. <laughs> and uh, about, it felt like a really long time. It was actually only about eight to ten minutes, but... Minutes later, Tyler finally looks up at the judge and he just said, I'm their son and they came for me and God has a plan and I'm going to trust it. And I told him later that night, that is exactly why we sow truth into our hearts. So that in the moments when we most need it, it's like right there for us at the ready. He would turn around and go to to Cincinnati junior high, English speaking junior high, three months later, the night before school, scared out of his mind about what junior high was going to be like in a second language. And I said to him, what do we know for sure is true? And he, you know, you're our son and we came for you. And tomorrow God has a plan. And you may not like it or understand it, but I promise you we can trust it. And later that fall, it was time for us to really unpack the gospel for him. And I said, you know it. You've been saying it for over a year now. God has a son and that son came for you. And he has a plan and you can trust it. And Tyler's 19 now and we still get big feelings at my house about girls and the internet and Xbox and cell phones and jobs and you name it, dating apps, websites. And, and when, when one of us starts to get big feelings, Tyler's quick to go, hey, mom, don't forget, I'm your son and you came for me. And God, <laughs> God has a plan and you can trust it. And, and we're those kind, like the whole reason we study God's word is so that we have it inside of us for those moments when all the pressure starts to create these really big feelings in us. And we're tempted to be guided by those big feelings instead by the plumb line of Christ. And that's, today I'm just going to share with you some of the stories that have happened for me since I was at IU and with a group of friends decided that we wanted to do something unconventional and try to bring as much light to a darkness, to the darkness um, that we could. Um, I think I also will start by telling you this word that's been uh, been important to me in the last couple of years. I woke up in 2018 and uh, this is, had never happened to me before. Sometimes you meet Christians who talk about like God gave them like a word for the year. That had never happened to me. But 2018, I kind of felt like I woke up in January and God had a word he wanted me to think about for that year. 
And that word was extra cool to me because it was in Hebrew, the language of the Old Testament. And the word was heneni. And we read it in English. Um, it's in our Bibles eight times in the Old Testament. And it's translated as here I am. You can see it. There's a story in Exodus chapter 3 where God's talking to Moses. I'll probably talk a lot about Moses today. I, I always say I have a Bible crush on Moses. But um, God's talking to Moses in front of the burning bush. And he's calling him to do something really um, bigger than Moses is capable of doing on his own. And when the Lord calls his name, Moses, he responds, singular word, heneni, here I am. We'll see that verse, uh, we'll see that word in Genesis chapter 22. God's talking to a man named Abraham who longed for a son, finally got a son. He's on his way up a mountain thinking he's going to have to sacrifice that son, that that was God's will. When God called out to him, Abraham, Abraham only responded with that word, heneni. We read that in our Bibles as here I am. But Heneni is better translated from Hebrew instead of here I am, which is good, but it's best translated as uh, whatever it is you're asking of me, I'm already in agreement of it. So I was telling everybody in 2018, this is my year, this is the year of Heneni. Like whatever God asks of me, I'm already in agreement of it. I don't, I'm not going to count how much it costs me. I'm not going to try to figure out if I'm good enough to do it, smart enough to do it, strong enough to do it. Like if God's asking me to do something, Heneni. And I got halfway through that year, and I was in Israel, and I was asking this Hebrew guide. I'm like, hey, so I'm, I'm like telling people about this word, Heneni, and I'm just, I'm just, could you just confirm for me I'm saying it right? Like, would you help me? Like, am I teaching it right? And he listened to me, and he goes, no, that's all right. Yep. He goes, you know, there's one time in your Bible where the Lord says Heneni to you. I'm like, there's some time in my Bible where the Lord says whatever it is I'm asking of him, he's already in agreement of it. Tell me where I'll find that. And he said, open up to Isaiah chapter 58. It says in verse 6, is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every chain, to share your food with the hungry, provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see someone naked to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood, like get busy about my work, set oppressed people free, break chains that hold people down, feed people that are hungry, clothe people that are naked, Shelter people that need, that need a home. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry out for help, and he will say to you, Heneni, here I am. Whatever it is you're asking of me, I'm already in agreement of it. That's really, I've been a missionary 25 years. That's the story of my whole missionary life in over my head, trying to do what God asked me to do, feeding hungry people, clothing naked people, sheltering people that need help, that need a spot to live. In, in the middle of those storylines, I am almost always on a daily basis run out of my own resources, experience, and strength about 1030 in the morning. Like I don't, I don't, I always say there's not enough Diet Coke in the world to make me good enough for the rest of the day. Like I, I don't have what it takes. But in that moment when I run out of what I am capable of on my own, and I cry out to God. His answer has always been, I will testify. This redeemed woman will tell you her story. I will testify that at that, that moment, God says, whatever it is you're asking of me, Beth, I'm already in agreement of it. What do you need? You need wisdom, patience, self-control, resources, discernment. Like, what do you, what do you need right now? I, I want to partner with you to be about my business. So I'll give you what you need in order to do it. And, uh, that's that whole idea of getting in over my head. It's um, man, it's it's it started all at IU. Um, certainly, where I met some of these guys. My husband and I went on a couple of mission trips when we were in college um, to places 
on the other side of the globe, I had to get maps out to find countries like Albania. We met a couple of orphans in one of those trips that left an impression on us. So we came back to Cincinnati. I was teaching in the Sycamore School District. My husband was at Cincinnati Hills Christian Academy. We went on a couple summer mission trips and saw, um, I don't know, I, I hate to say it this way, but like bad mission trips. We painted this wall we were partnering with a church with in a town in Mexico from blue to green, but the year before we painted it from green to blue, so like what was a big deal? And in the middle of one of those trips, <clears throat> we decided to hijack what the plan had been. And I, I spoke some bad Spanish, I got in a taxi cab and asked them if they knew where an orphanage was and found myself in front of an orphanage and I shouldn't have known what to do when I got there because I didn't, I studied French for nine years. Like where was Jesus in the seventh grade when it was time for me to pick my language because I would go on to live in a Spanish speaking country for 15 years, but I didn't speak any Spanish knocked on a door through bad communication, told this man that answered the door with my husband, hey, we got three things in our hand, 200 US dollars, 20 able-bodied high school kids, and one complete day on, of a trip left. And if you had access to those resources, what would you do? That's how every family on mission day begins. You figure out what you have in your hand, what resources do you have, and who has God given you a heart for, and you, and you just, you just bridge those in the name of Jesus, and the rest of the story gets to be told by God. So next Thursday night, you show up at, at City Gospel Missions. You'll bring your time. You'll bring some of your church resources. You'll bring some of your relationships with each other. You have a heart for that community. You'll bridge it. The rest of what happens is not up to you, and we're not really supposed to count at that point. God's looking for two things. He's looking for our faithfulness and our availability. Anyway, the guy was like, well, the kids haven't had meat in over a year, and the front windows are broken. You could come back with your time and your money and do something about that. And I thought that sounded way better than painting, so that's exactly what happened. <clears throat> the next day, we brought some students. One of the, um, what my job was just to make these hamburgers, which I thought was going to last this, this orphanage of about 50 kids for the rest of the month. But um, I was just, I had no system, you know, like how many people had eaten, who had eaten. I just was like making hamburgers and kids were coming up for them and it was awesome. And Todd finished with the windows and he came over and he's like, hey, do you see that little preschooler? There's this little girl who'd come up in line a few times. I'm like, yeah, she's so cute. He's like, well, she's been in your line like five times and I don't know a preschooler that can eat that many hamburgers. So why don't you follow her and find out where those burgers are going? So I followed her. And I saw, um, I, she, she took me somewhere, and I could tell we, she was leading me to the door frame of this dorm room, and she dropped my hand and went in with her buddies. And I could see from where I was standing that they were all helping each other lift up their mattresses, and they were sticking those burgers underneath them. And I, I just kept thinking about all the people I knew in Cincinnati that would buy hamburgers for orphans if they only knew how to get them there. And we had this moment, we've since called like our burr and our saddle, this like, since that we came back to Cincinnati, Todd and I had matching SUVs, the cutest little condo you ever saw, like a life trajectory that I had figured out what was, where we were headed and what we were going to do. And God wrecked it with one moment of watching those burgers get hidden under that mattress. And I never quite could sit comfortably in the same seat again. Every time I sat down, it felt like I was getting poked by something. I was like almost physically uncomfortable. So we were at double income, no kids. We decided let's just save our money for a year and just like get ourselves in a position where if God asked us to do something, we'd be ready to do it. So for the next year, we saved one salary, lived off of the other. At the end of the year, I thought I was sitting on a treasure. It was uh, one year of my teaching salary, so you know how big my treasure was. But, um, <laughs> and we decided we would just move to Mexico. And 
learn the culture of the hurt kid and learn the language and build relationships. I mean, that was about as lofty as our targeted objectives were. And um, this is like before the internet. So I went to Barnes & Noble. Actually, it was called Joseph Beth. I went to Joseph Beth and bought a book on how to move to another country. And it said, take bills with you in small denominations so you can easily exchange them. So I went to my bank in, here in Cincinnati and said to them, I'd like to withdraw my entire account in cash, please, preferably small bills. And um, <laughs> that alerts a bank manager. So he came out <laughs> and he was like, so what are, you, what, are you, what are you doing with all your money? And I said, I'm moving to Mexico. <laughs> He's like, why don't you come back in my office for a minute? So he, I, go, I go back in his office and he tells me, um, he, he talks me into something we don't even do anymore today, but he talked me into transferring that entire account into traveler's checks. So I put all those travel checks in my backpack. Well, Todd and I drove in a Sousa Trooper three days down to Monterey, Mexico, where we would live. Those, tra those traveler's checks went into a safe we bought, and it, about eight days after we got there, it was time to turn those into pesos. And the idea was we were just gonna take them to a bank, get pesos, put the pesos in the safe, and use it as our own ATM. We didn't have the right paperwork to have a bank account in Mexico. So I queue up at this bank in Monterey called Benorte, and it was my time in line in front of the window. And the lady starts talking to me. There's thick glass between you and a teller in a country like that, and there's like a squawk box that they talked through. And she started talking to me. I'm eight days in, I like knew the alphabet, maybe. Yeah, I could order from McDonald's. That was about it. And um, she starts to talk to me, and I, I, didn't, I just like, didn't have any idea what she was saying. I had already given her all the traveler's checks under the divot in the window, and she was returning them while she was talking. And I said to my husband, like, I think she just asked us for our passport. She'd like to see some ID. So I put our passports on top of those traveler's checks and I returned them to her, but that was not what she was, said, was saying to me. And she did what people say when they don't think you understand them. They get really slow and loud. So she starts to yell at me through this like, little box. Tienes que firmar tu nombre aquí, por favor, ponte la nombre allá en la línea, por favor. Firma tu nombre allá en la línea. Like she's saying it over and over in every way she can, as loud as she can. And I, she had returned the checks to me, and just out of panic, I returned them back to her, because I'm thinking, if these things don't turn into pesos, we literally can't even drive back to Ohio, you know? So I'm like shoving them to her, she's shoving them to me, I'm shoving them to her. <laughs> Finally, I heard one word that I thought I recognized from that week, firme, nombre. I'm like, nombre, nombre, nombre. I heard that word this week, and I got out, I said, Todd, give me paper. So he handed me paper, and I wrote the word nombre on this paper, and I showed it to her through the glass. She's like, mm-hmm. And then she points to the line at the bottom of the checks. And I picked up my pen, and on every one of those lines, I wrote the word nombre, nombre. <laughs> she, of course, was asking me to sign those checks. And uh, that word nombre is name in Spanish. <laughs> one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10. It says, do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. God did not look down at me that day and think, oh my gosh, she is going to be a terrible missionary. Like, <laughs> literally cannot even cash a travel check. He looked down at me that day and he, he saw all the events of my life that led to that faith step. He saw all the events that have transpired since 25 years later, here I stand. This year we're transferred $12 million in rupee and naira and peso around the world. But if I came here and just told you this chapter of the story, you might be tempted to give credit to the wrong person. But I'm telling you, I stand in a long line of people throughout biblical and modern history that were ill-equipped, immature, under-resourced, under-prepared. I mean, that list could keep going. He loves to tell stories through people like us because then he gets all the credit for them. He's looking just for faithfulness and availability. One of, one of my favorite stories in the book of Exodus, the, the book that tells us the most about Moses, is in chapter 19. 
Moses at this point is 80 years old. So you can kind of break up Moses' life into three 40-year periods. But at this point in chapter 19, he's 80 years old. So just in your mind, picture an 80-year-old man, like what some 80-year-old man that you know. And he's at the bottom of a mountain that's 6,000 feet tall. And the Lord calls to him to come up to the top of the mountain because he wants to tell him something. Um, I'm thinking if I was Moses, I'd be like, hey, if I heard you to come up here, like I could hear whatever you have to tell me from down here. I don't need to walk 6,000 feet to get up there because 6,000 feet for any of us would be a challenge. 6,000 feet for an 80-year-old man without good hiking boots and a camelback water bottle. That's even harder, right? You know? But Moses obeys. So he goes up to the top of the mountain. The Lord gives him a message and says, I want you to go down and tell this to my people. And then come up and tell me how it went. You might be thinking to yourself, if you're Moses, hey, you're God, just like watch me. Like, we just watch how it goes. I don't want to walk back up here 6,000 more feet. That's not what happens. Moses walks down 6,000 feet to the bottom of the mountain, tells God's people his message. Then he walks for the second time at 80 years old, 6,000 feet to the second peak to tell, to tell the Lord how it went. He gets up there and tells the Lord that message, and God's like, I'm so glad you're here because I want something, I want you to tell something to Aaron. Would you go down and get him and bring him back up? Like, are you kidding me? Aaron was just with me. Like, I, I know you're God. You knew that you were going to want him like a while ago. You could have told me. I could have brought him up this last time. But uh, gosh, Moses doesn't talk back. He's not sassy like that. So he goes back down the mountain. He gathers Aaron. And I just want you to use your imagination for a minute and like, what do you think the conversation was like with the Lord on his second, on his third time up the mountain? I think he would have needed him for literally for every single step which is what God is looking for in our journeys with him, that we be in positions where we would literally need him for every single step. That's where intimacy grows. That's where relationships, connection, that's what, that's what happens. If you turn your Bible just two chapters later, Moses is going to go up another mountain. He's going to come down with something called the Ten Commandments, which we all talk about today. And sometimes I can be tempted to want a Ten Commandment-sized story without doing the work of the three times up the mountain. But God, I think, is way more interested in the three times up the mountain than he is in the Ten Commandments-sized story. Like he, He's looking to cultivate this kind of relationship with us. And that means that sometimes we walk through stories that we don't like and we can't control. And back-to-back, uh, -back we do a bunch of, oh, I forgot to say thank you. I want to start off with that way. Hey, thank you so much. This last week, this church delivered 40 exact, how many, 48, 40? 43 backpacks to our work here in Cincinnati um, in, in, ready, in time for the start of school with some of the marginalized families that are in the city. So, um, oh my gosh, thank you for being on mission and doing that. Sorry, a little tangent. I meant to say that at the beginning. Um, but in our back-to-back, -back, uh, we talk about in our trauma training, what happens when we confront realities that we don't like and can't control? And we see right now in the United States a whole culture of people that don't quite know what to do when they're confronting something they don't like and they can't control. And it literally stunts growth unless we do the work of getting around it. And the way Jesus modeled for us in the Garden of Gethsemane that we get around it is by grieving. We have to grieve. Jesus grieved what it was like to, to not want to do what it is that he was about to do. And as he grieved that process, then he was able to get around it and then go accomplish what God had for him. I was just telling Emery before the service today, I've been saying lately that grief is a little bit like poop. You have to do a little bit every day, right? Or else you get kind of constipated. And I think, I think our whole country is like emotionally constipated. It needs to do a little bit of grieving 
to get around the things that you don't like and can't control. But that was a lesson that it took me a long time to learn. I grew up in the church. Um, every time the church opened its doors, I was in its basement or I was, I was in the kitchen or I was on a pew. I loved the church. I loved Jesus growing up. So imagine how confusing it was to me after I had all those great IU experiences and I got married to the man of my dreams and we were living this cute little life and God was amazing. And my 51-year-old father, who also had loved Jesus in all the same ways and all that same history, um, got sick with cancer. And I would tell everybody, hey, no worries. Like, I've read my Bible. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray with two or three. We're going to anoint them with oil. We're going to fast before we do it. And we're going to say it all in Jesus' name, and God will heal them. Hey, this is how stories, this is how God writes stories. They're awesome. So for 10 months, that's how I prayed. And imagine how confused I was when God decided to take my dad home. And I didn't have a theology that fit things that were hard. I didn't. I didn't know where that sat inside of my framework. And so I broke up with Jesus for a little bit. But life away from Christ is very lonely and painful. So I came back to him, but I kept saying um, to my husband, I feel like I have a spiritual bruise. The spiritual bruise is like when you assign disappointment to God that actually belongs in another place. But I was, I was disappointed in God. I found something I didn't like and I couldn't control, and I didn't quite know how to grieve around it. But um, I just created workarounds, no worries. Like I'm, I still figured out how to be a professional Christian and we moved to Mexico and I was gonna be a missionary. And the first, as soon as we got to Mexico, I got pregnant. I didn't have any idea I was pregnant for months. I just thought Mexican food and I didn't agree. Finally, we decided to go to the hospital because I was sure I must've had a parasite of some kind. And uh, <laughs> turns out I did in a certain way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That whole first year we were living there off our savings account, I was growing this little girl named Emma in my belly, but I had an adoption seed in my heart that God had planted a long time before I knew whether my body would work in that way. And I, I still was actively pursuing the adoption of a, two little sisters that were one and three that I wanted to adopt. And so when halfway through that process, we had all of our paperwork ready, everything was all ready, that process got disrupted, I was right back in a place where I was disappointed in circumstances, but I was definitely blaming God. And my bruise was getting more and more tender. I gave birth to Emma, it was awesome. And our money ran out, so it was time for us to come back to Cincinnati and get reorganized in an organization kind of way and raise the funds that would be required for us to go back again. We talked some good friends of ours into trading places with us. They were moved into our rental house that we had been living in in Mexico. They were just gonna keep all the relationships and all the momentum going while we went home for however long that took to get everything fixed and come back. And I can remember um, 4th of July weekend, 1998, I pouted my whole way up through Texas because we were leaving Mexico and I was in love with my daughter. But I was telling the Lord, I mean, hello, I would be a great mom. I cannot believe you did not let me leave that country with an adopted baby. Like I, I felt you calling me to it. I feel you stirring it in me. I feel the desire for it. Why don't you do what you say you're gonna do? mad the whole way home. Todd started a job at CHCA as an administrator, a job everyone thought he was too young for, so he was working like twice as hard to make sure everybody knew he could do that job. It was the first day of school, and it was really a very busy day for him, and the phone rang, and it was my friends in Mexico who had traded us places, and as soon as I picked up the phone, I knew there was something like crazy going on in the background. I could hear the chaos, and they were screaming at me, 
hey, this little, another little kid that I love, this little girl named Ruth, had been hit by a car. And they were like, they just got there. So they were like, where do we go? And how do we pay? And where do we stay? And what, like, all the, and I'm like shouting at them, go to this hospital. And, and this is what, what you say. And oh, we could figure out everything in real time in that moment, except for I could not figure out how to get them the money they would need. Today, I know about international wire transfers, but I did not then. So I just looked at my watch and I thought, oh, there is a noon flight out of Cincinnati to Monterey. So I said, hey, you know what? I'm coming. I'll get on a plane at noon. I'll bring the money. You go to the hospital. I'll be there by dinner. See you later. Bye. And they were like, okay, great. So they hung up. They were in an emergency. And I thought, oh my gosh, Todd is so busy at work. Like he does not want to deal with me right now. And this will allow him to be able to focus totally on what he's up to. So I'm going to just um, write him a note and leave it on the kitchen table. <laughs> So that is exactly what I did. I just said, hey, Ruth got hit by a car. I ran to Mexico with Dana Terry Jepson. And uh, I, am, I uh, took, yes, took a bunch of money. Be back by the weekend. Okay. I have, I have Emma. So I went to the airport, flew there, got to Monterey. Little Ruth eventually recovered from her injuries. Drove to my, my rental house, which my friends were living in. And almost as soon as I walked in the door, the phone rang. And um, they were like, oh, you face the music, because we all thought it was Todd. But... It wasn't him. It was someone who was looking for me, and that had been my phone number until the month before. And I, I, I shouldn't have been there that night to answer the phone. If my friends had answered the phone, they wouldn't. They didn't speak enough Spanish to know what they would have wanted. They would have hung up on them. Like it was. A, it was an attorney who was just networking, looking for a family that was paperwork ready for an immediate adoption because a baby boy had been born a few weeks before Fourth of July weekend in one state in Mexico and had been transferred to another state in Mexico and his international adoption eligibility was almost over. He had about 72 hours left to find a family. So they were just like, hey, are you interested in flying to another state I'd never been to before, a whole airplane ride away in Mexico and standing uh, in court on Monday at noon to adopt this little boy who is six weeks difference in age than my daughter. And uh, I was like, this phone call home is getting more interesting by the minute, right? <laughs> <laughs> But in the midst of that moment, I, I had this, um, I now know the words. I didn't know the words at the time. Exodus 25, God gives instructions to Moses about how to build a tabernacle, and this is the paraphrase of it. He basically says to him, if you make a room for me, if you make this space for me, I will come and fill the space. And that is what I believe is our call today. Like, we just need to go into places and make room for God. Then he does it. He, make, he comes and fills the space. He does the healing, convicting, the challenging, the growing, the miracles. The, everything that happens now is all about him. It is our job to make space for him. And no, nobody should ever take credit for what happens inside of the space except for Jesus. Don't let anybody ever do it. It's, it's all God. And in that phone call, I, I just was like, okay, uh, I'm, I'm feeling something. I now have words for it. It's called the peace that passes understanding. Like, it doesn't make sense to anyone else, but it makes sense to you. I wrote down the instructions to that courthouse, and then I called Todd. The balance of that conversation, not totally appropriate for a Sunday morning. <laughs> just kidding. He was lovely. But I told him about Ruth and everything, and then I got to this phone call. And he was just like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And I knew what he was doing. He was making room for God because his first reaction was like, are you kidding me? I just started a job. And like, are you kidding? But like when, when you make room for God, then things that don't have to make sense to anyone else actually start to make sense to you. And they certainly make sense in hindsight. Following God's will always makes sense in hindsight. But in the moment, you're just like, all I have to go on is what you give me. And how can I get what you give me if I don't make room for, for the gift? So he said, you're right. 
I feel it. I sense it. I'll, I'll, I'll meet you tomorrow in Veracruz. I'm like, okay, see you then. <laughs> and the next day we met um, each other. And they handed us our son. And all I can say is I knew right away something was wrong with him. I didn't know what was wrong with him. I just knew his legs were scissored and we couldn't open him. His arms were kind of frozen in this really weird position and I couldn't straighten him out. Um, he was in a rainforest, so he had this growth in his mouth that made him not want to eat. So his belly was really bloated, distended from malnutrition. He had this fungus growing up his body. So we were looking at our cross-legged, frozen-armed, fungus-covered, bloated belly brown baby, and we were like, oh my gosh, isn't he so cute, right? <laughs> Eventually, we were able to get him back here to the fabulous Cincinnati Children's Hospital, and after lots of testing, I sat in the office of a neurologist who said to me, hey, you have four degrees of cerebral palsy, mild, moderate, severe, and profound, and your son has severe cerebral palsy. Not gonna walk, not gonna talk. I doubt he'll ever live independently. And the faster you get your head wrapped around that diagnosis, the better off for that baby it's gonna be. And man, this doctor had no idea that he was grinding his heel in my spiritual bruise. Because I didn't even know how to talk to God about something like that. Like, I know it doesn't work the way that I thought it worked. I know I don't even know how to ask you what to do. And now, are you kidding me? I can't go back to Mexico? The one thing that I knew for sure I thought you wanted us to do? I just want, I like to be honest about how I was in the moments of that story because I feel like sometimes Christians, especially when they get platforms, they just tell stories with giant bows on the end of them. And I want you to know that I was not feeling like rainbows and unicorns. I knew for sure God wanted that baby to be our son, but that's all I knew really at that moment. I went home, I remember Todd and I having a moment. The next 18 months, um, you know, my friends kept staying in Mexico, and we just, I dove into the world of the medical community here. On Monday, Evan and I and Emma went to physical therapy. On Tuesday, we went to occupational therapy. On Wednesday, we went to, like, magnetic therapy. Thursday, we went to, like, this hot water therapy. Friday, I was going to therapy. Like, we were busy all <laughs> trying to get healthy. And uh, 18 months, nothing happens. And this lady comes from, we were living in Warren County at the time, Warren County Early Intervention from the Center of Mental Retardation. She came to our house. And her job was to help me understand how I could use certain aspects of my physical environment in order to stimulate Evan's movement. So like I could kind of be doing my layperson's therapy in the house, even when he didn't have a, an appointment. And she watched me with Evan for a minute. His muscles were hypertonic, which meant very tight, very painful. Everything was really hard. And his sister came and stole a toy and walked away. And I went and got the toy and fixed his body. And she goes, you know what? I'm just looking at you, Beth. And here's what I want you to know. It feels to me like you're rescuing him too much. And I literally said, get out of my house. Like, I, like I, are you kidding me? All we ever do is dangle Cheerios in front of this little kid. And he's in therapy all the time. I am not rescuing him too much. She's now a dear friend of mine, but was not that day. <laughs> I escorted her out the door, and I sat down in front of him, and um, I just started to cry. I was crying about Evan. I was crying eventually about Mexico. I was crying about my dad. Like, when you decide to grieve, I can't say it yet when you decide to poop. When you decide to grieve, like, it just, it just you know, you just open it all up, right? Like, so, it's having all these big feelings. I, w I left the room for a minute to clean off my face, and when I came back in the room for the first time ever, Evan had moved about six or eight feet. I didn't see how he did it, but, I mean, there's no other way he could have gotten where he got except for on his own. So I just was watching him, and he was kind of army crawling, and I left because we used to have phones that were on our walls, and I went to go get one of those to um, call my mom to come over and see what was happening. She was a neighbor of ours. 
And when I got back in the room with the phone, I just dropped it because he had gotten all the way across the floor and he was stuck up against our couch, which had like a fabric skirt to it. And he put his fists around the fabric. And it wasn't like that pretty, but he started to rock until he popped himself up to a stand. And when I saw him stand, like all the hair on the back of my neck stood up. And then he did what physical therapists call cruising. He held onto that couch and he like walked across the, the length of it. Then he got to the end and he pivoted on his heel and he walked across the room in my arms. I had, I had no words. I mean, I grabbed those babies, stuck them in a car seat. I'm sure I didn't even buckle them in, drove 100 miles an hour to that Christian school. It's like every Christian school you've ever seen with a big circle drive in the front of it. I took out like three bushes on my way in. <laughs> Todd's office faced the front, so he came out to figure out what was on fire. And uh, I didn't, I just took Evan out of his car seat, stuck him in front of his dad, and he walked over to his dad, and we had this moment in the lobby of the school where, like, we started talking about soccer fields and wedding aisles, and it was, like, unbelievable. Evan never again would show another sign of cerebral palsy. We moved almost immediately back to Mexico, where we lived for the next 14 years, and by the time Evan was like a preschooler, you play a lot of soccer in Mexico, and I put him on a soccer team, and he would like run down the field and get a goal, and I'd be like sobbing on the sidelines that his body had done that. But he, he was like a preschooler, so he wasn't paying attention. Then he was like in sixth grade, you know, and he's like, Mom, you, you can't come to my soccer games if you cry when I score, you know. <laughs> <clears throat> then we moved to the United States when he was 16, and um, he played football for King's High School, and I can remember... The first time he caught a touchdown pass as a wide receiver, I was like, whoa, just still overwhelmed with what God did. He went on to play football for Taylor University where he graduated. You can show that picture now of him and his sister. Um, and uh, I, can, I got a chance to go to his school and share his story a couple of years ago. And the students didn't know what I was talking about until all of a sudden when I talked about him walking, I had him walk on stage with me, and they started to put together the fact that that story was about someone they recognized from campus life. And college students do what they do, like they were screaming, you know, they're like <laughs> roaring. At, like, and Evan was standing next to me, he's really tall, so he's like got his hand on me, and he's just like absorbing their energy. And I stopped them and I said, hey, the reason I tell you this is not so you know something wildly personal about our family. The reason I tell you this is because we have to still believe today that with God all things are possible. That the same girl prayed to the same God for two people that I loved. And one of those stories turned out nothing like I wanted it to and one of those stories turned out even better than I ever asked it for. And the way that God healed my spiritual bruise was he taught me a lesson that lived with me then for the next 20 some years that God is sovereign and he can be trusted. And if he is writing a chapter in a story, he's writing it from a perspective that I don't have. And that in the middle of that story, the, the only responsibility I have is to keep making room for him in it. And then he will give me in that space whatever it is that I need. Wisdom, mercy, patience, self-control, joy, you name it. He'll, he'll give it to me in that space. And we can trust him for the things that we can't yet see. There's a story in Exodus. I love the plagues. Next time I'll come back and talk to you about some of the plagues. But um, <laughs> after all the plagues and the let my people go story and God's people who had been enslaved for generations were free to finally leave. We don't really know. Uh, Pharaoh lost his son. He was really sad. So he's like, find you people. You can leave. There's no text messaging. No like CNN. Like how in the world did those people know that they were free to leave? 
Like the best theologians can say is that there were there's like town criers that went out amongst the many and just shouted, we can go. And then the, like I'm someone that packs my suitcase a lot. Like then these like, I'm just picturing like these slave women go into their slave huts that they've only ever known. And they're thinking, okay, well we can go. I don't know where we're going, how long it's going to take us to get there. I don't know what we're going to do when we get there. I don't know what it's going to require to get there. I don't, I don't have an answer to any of my questions. Like, how do, how do I prepare for a journey like that? Like, what do I literally pack in my backpack? Like, maybe like an extra, like, I don't know, pack of flour? Like, your sandals? Like, what do you take on a journey? You don't know what's going to happen. I, I mean, I, I just literally promise you, they had no idea. Hey, I bet that ocean down there is going to split in half for us to get through. They get down to the edge of the Red Sea, and of course, that's exactly what happens. The ocean splits in half. The Lord leads his people through the land, um, dry ground, and then Pharaoh changes his mind as people go chasing up after him. It says in Exodus uh, 15, when Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. But the Israelites, they walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam the prophet, one of these women, Aaron's sister, she took a tambourine in her hand. Like, of all the things you thought to say from your slave shack, like your, your musical instrument made it, right? Like, she took a tambourine in her hand, all the women followed her, each of them with their own tambourines, and they began to sing and dance something the Bible calls Miriam's song. And ever since I really understood that story, I've traveled everywhere I go with the tambourine, and I just tell the Lord, I don't know what you're going to do, I don't know how long it's going to take me to get there, I don't know what it's going to require, I, I don't have any answers to any of my questions, but I want to be like those women and be ready in a moment's notice to praise you when you show up. Um, I... I want to close my time here. It's so sweet to me with our, our, all of our IU connections. I was an IU student the first time I heard this story. I was at an event called Christmas Conference, and there was a speaker there named Josh McDowell who was telling a story about a man in Rwanda who had come to know Jesus and believe, was believed to be the only person who received the gospel story that was presented to his tribe. And the rest of the tribe was very hostile against him for having made a decision that the gods they had always believed in were false and that this Jesus Christ was the one true God. And they were challenging him over the course of a few weeks on his testimony and finally said, if tomorrow, the chief said to him, if tomorrow at tribal council, you do not renounce Jesus Christ as the one true God, it will cost you your life. You'll pay with your life. And that night, that man wrote something down. I'm going to read to you here in closing. We do know the next day he did not renounce Jesus and did and was martyred that day for his faith. But there was someone else who had received the Lord who just hadn't had the courage to, to be as public about it as his friends. But when, his, but when the man was martyred, this other young believer went into his room and rescued this. And uh, I, the first time I heard it, I was sitting in an auditorium, all, you know, thousands of college students. I literally, I literally, I'll do this. I, I like, he, Josh McDowell was talking, and I literally, like, climbed on top of the chair and stood up. Like, it was obnoxious, thousands of people. I, my body wanted to react to what my spirit was feeling. I wonder if I can do this standing on this without falling. Let's see. That'll be something you talk about later if I, if I fall. <laughs> I don't think I'll do it. <laughs> I don't want to extract anything from what he said. This is what they found um, in his room. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. 
The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back. Let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I am finished and done with low living and sight walking and small planning and smooth knees and colorless dreams and tame visions and mundane talking and chancy giving and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotion, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right or first or tops or recognized or praised or regarded or rewarded. I now live by presence. I learn by faith. I love by patience. I lift by power and I labor by prayer. My pace is set. My goal is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few. My guide reliable and my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, diluted, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice or hesitate in the presence of adversity or negotiate at the table of my enemy or ponder at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, back up, or let up, or shut up until I've preached up and prayed up and paid up and stored up and stayed up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go until he returns and give until I drop and preach until all know and work until he comes. And when he comes to get his own, he'll have no problem recognizing me. My colors will be clear because I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. Would you pray with me?